0: Well, it's uh, back into Matthew chapter 8 this morning. I am excited to come to this text again, but as I was reminded first hour, I was talking to a couple that were, was new to uh, visiting our church and just showing up and I was explaining The ministry here and the commitment to the Word of God and commitment to sequential verse-by-verse exposition that we have here. And I was basically explaining that I know where I'm going to go and be just about every week that I preach because I'm just going down the tracks in front of me, paragraph to paragraph to paragraph, section to section, If I had to come up with what I was going to say on Monday or Tuesday in a way that I thought would be compelling or inspiring or bring people back, I would lose my mind. I wouldn't get anything done at all. I'd be frozen trying to write a paper I don't know what to write about. And instead, we have the Bible, but what comes out of studying the Bible like this in sequence and uh, verse by verse is our themes themes emerge. As you go down and scoop up what's there, something bubbles to the top and the surface, and you think, okay, well, what does God want me to say about what this means? In other words, we're practically talking about, last week and this week, about Satan and demons because the text and story in front of us is about Jesus casting out a legion of demons. And so, I can tell you the story and tell you what's there, but I'm also trying to sense by the Holy Spirit's leading, why am I telling you about what's there and what does this mean for your life? Why does God have me in the text right now to re-engage the topic of spiritual warfare? And so it was good to introduce that to these visitors and say, that's what's going on during the preaching. I'm not just teaching in sequence, but I'm also trying to, to discern what to say in light of what's there, and then trying to feel out what it means for our lives. There's a lot going on in our worlds, both practically and individually, in a big picture and in your own microcosmic life. And you should probably be asking along with me, why do I need to learn more about the enemy? Why do I need to learn more about Satan and demons? I've been trying to anchor us in the battle that's raging. And I don't know what that looks like for your life or how you're being attacked. I don't think it's my place to know, but I want us to learn everything we can know about what is going on and what it means for our lives practically so that we're ready for the battle, ready for the fight, so that we're not sidelined by the enemy, Satan. He's real. He's powerful. He's attacking. He's tempting. And as we're fighting the battle against our own flesh and just trying to live day to day in a pure and holy and righteous way, we also have an enemy that's like hiding behind trees and bushes, shooting arrows at us, trying to flank us from the side. We fight the battle in front of us and then we're having to resist the temptations of Satan. If you remember, Jesus was not immune to this battle. He never had to fight his own flesh like we do. He was sinless, I believe incapable of sinning as the Son of God, truly God and man. Um, Amazing um, hypostatic union between who he was and is, it's amazing, it's a mystery, sinless, but at the same time, he was attacked by Satan directly in the wilderness externally. We experienced that same attack that he experienced, and he modeled how to resist the devil, and the devil ultimately fled from him. This is our battle, so we need to know where we stand in it. I said greater, I quoted First John 4, 4 last week, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have Christ in us. And so Satan, out there outside of us, is in the world. He's trying to disrupt something in our lives. He can't destroy our souls. He can't separate us from saving faith. He can't loose us from the grip of the Father. He can't unseal us from the Holy Spirit. He can't strip away or take away our inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. He can't disqualify your sonship. He can't take the Holy Spirit from you. He can't do any of that, but he can get in your head. Demons can get into our minds. They can tempt us. Ephesians 6, where it's saying we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but angels and principalities, that's real, that is real dynamic, if for no other reason I'm bringing this up to say that's real to us and we need to be fighting a good fight of faith against it, contending earnestly for the truth, waging the good warfare, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 are moral commands to be obeyed. Take up the shield of faith, put on the whole armor of God, gird your loins in truth, put on the helmet of salvation, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel. This armor equipment is to fortify you within a battle. You're not going to be unseated as a Christian by Satan, but you could be sidelined. You could be attacked in a way that would make you feel disqualified from doing anything for Christ at all. We need to be His um, instruments, and we need to be ready for the battle. And so, we need to know this battle is real; it's powerful, and the flaming darts are coming from an evil one who is our enemy. How dangerous are demons to a believer? Let's just parallel, just uh, you know, cross-reference this with how we're supposed to feel about an enemy from Afghanistan right now. You have you know one. You have leadership in our country that's saying, oh, that's not dangerous. That's not something that could ever get you. And we need to rethink, you know, the Taliban and what's going on out there. And then ironically, at the same time, we're memorializing and remembering the events where planes flew into, um, you know, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. Right. I mean, do we have an enemy or not? Is warfare real or not? This is sort of the Americanized version of what I'm trying to do biblically to say we have an enemy. He's real. He's a fallen devil. He, he came up against God, very God. There's an uncountable myriad upon myriad, a third of those that are demons that are out there. What are we supposed to do about this enemy, this third-party attack where we're fighting our own flesh? And it's between um, the spirit of God in our lives and our own flesh, and then we have this attack that is upon us that we need to respond to. We might look at a text and a story like Matthew 8 and Jesus um, exercising demons and say, that's irrelevant to my life. Really, I'm not a demoniac. I don't have a legion of demons in me. What does this have to do with me? Well, just because uh, this... Um, engagement is a power encounter counter that we can see and visualize as we read this. Don't underestimate its application in your own life. Let's take this to heart. This is really not a foreign experience to us at all because guess what? Just like the demoniacs, as you are a Christian, you were once under Satan's rule. You were once under living under Satan's realm. A domain of darkness, like living in a, a spiritual mindedness of death. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Before you come to Christ, you are blinded um, by Satan himself. You're blinded by the God of this world. He blinds us, he keeps us from seeing Christ as beautiful. He actually makes Christ repugnant. He makes Christ someone to be avoided, someone who holds us accountable in our own minds. Why would you want to draw near to someone that knows everything about you? That's what Satan does to people in slaving people to their sins and keeping them in a dark place, a dark realm, in a place where they are unentreatable when you give them the gospel. Have you ever talked to people like that? They're under satanic blindness. And then Christ, through the Holy Spirit, takes The blinders off, unshackles the bondage, delivers you from the domain of darkness and puts you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Suddenly joy joy enters your heart. And Jesus, as opposed to being repulsive, is the pearl of great price, beloved to us. And all we have is Christ. So just by way of review, um, the storyline is about being saved from Satan. These demoniacs were saved from Satan. And we too are saved from Satan. What does it mean to be saved from Satan? Look at verse 28. And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Verse 1 is point 1. We're saved from Satan's realm. Remember, Jesus was, um, he had gone with his disciples after uh, a healing evening up in um, Capernaum. Went six miles due southeast across the Sea of Galilee to the other side to get away from the population on the west coast. He went to the east coast and went there, got out of the boat, trekked in six miles, probably with his band of disciples and came to the land of the Gadarenes, which was the location for the city of Gursa. Why you have the garrisons um, parallel there? It's uh, Gersa, and right out of that, um, the is a mountainside where you have the city on one side and the tombs on the other. Two demoniacs come um, running up to Jesus uh, to battle him, to confront him, to really answer the question: What in the world do we have to do with each other right now? And so Jesus is there, and this cave tomb-like experience that these demoniacs represent is really the same idea of the realm that we are coming out of. We're living dead in our trespasses and sins before we know Christ. There's two demoniacs that are mentioned here in Matthew. Um, Don't be confused by Mark's reference to the the, the demoniac and Luke's reference to one demoniac, there's one that is demonstrative, one that is talking directly with Jesus, one that is designated as having a legion of demons inside of him, a legion being the representation of 6,000 soldiers in the Roman um, centurion guard. So, you, so this demoniac might have had, had 6,000 demons in him. We know that the demons were ultimately cast, um, Mark 5 says, into uh, Two thousand um, pigs or swine, and so there were thousands of demons that were inhabiting uh, these men, so much so that they were verse twenty eight they were fierce, they were uh, formidable foes. Satan is powerful. demons are powerful don 't underestimate or underrate demonic influence just because you have weird Hollywood movies that speak of demons as that which invade you in your bed and you know come through the walls and things. Um, you know, those are perhaps um, representative of witchcraft or versions of Satanism, but Satan is an angel of light. Satan is, um, he's, he's behind all of the false um, narratives against Christ. The Bible is hate speech. Jesus can't be the only way to heaven. Um, Don't believe in Jesus. Don't come under the authority of God's word. That's all demonic. That's all satanic. And so you have to understand that there is a bigger battle that's going on beyond just what is um, portrayed in Hollywood. They're very bold. They were, um, these demoniacs were actually, um, they were impassable. They were holding hostage the community. So the community was probably living on the livestock, um, and, and then they were held in bondage by these demoniacs, and I'm stealing my own thunder from what's ahead in the sermon and the text, but ultimately, um, the people were settled into this situation. Like, I guess this is how it's got to be. I'm comfortable here. We're under these demoniacs. We're under this influence. We're living with them as if in this cave-like existence. We're entombed in this. When you're saved, you're delivered out of that. You're delivered out of that dark, satanic realm. That's what they represent. And secondly, verse 29, you're not only saved from Satan's realm, you're saved from enslavement. Look at verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Um, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel talk about how they were in shackles, um, they were rubbing the shackles and melting them with superpower, but all of these, um, these two, both of these two were enslaved to their own sin, and they knew it. They knew it. They knew their their time was coming. Uh, verse twenty nine says, "Before the time." Uh, They knew that Jesus had come. He was Lord, that he could torment them. They they were the terrorists, but they were now in a subservient posture saying, are you coming here to terrorize us? Are you here to turn the tables on us before the time? They knew they weren't going to have a second chance. They knew that they were enslaved to their situation. Literally, the language of verse 29 is, what have we between you and me? What do we have going on here? They knew exactly who Jesus was and they knew that they were enslaved before we come to Christ, came to Christ. We were enslaved to our own sin in the same way. Ultimately, Jesus is exposing them as having a legion of demons, um, thousands and thousands of demons in them that they were these men were enslaved to. There's a there's a dynamic if you harmonize and look at Mark's account, Luke's account, where the demon, the demoniac person is actually speaking, but the demons through the demoniac are influencing the speaker. And a lot of times we, we see that demonstrated, you know, in the movies as something where someone's got a a different voice or, you know, their head spinning around, they're frothing in the mouth, they turn green. I mean, that, that's just Hollywood stuff uh, primarily, but, but People, people are demonically influenced. They will speak in, in ways that are anti-Christ if you will discern them. People will counter truth and go against um, what is reality here and will miss the mark. They, they will say things where it's as if God isn't real at all. So thirdly, not only are we saved from a satanic realm, We're not only saved from enslavement. Thirdly, we're saved from certain judgment. And I want to begin at verse 30 and pick up the story here um, where we left off last time. It says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. He said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters, saved from certain judgment. You know, a demon and the devil, they're under certain and sure judgment. There's no second chance with a demon or a devil. They are locked into their situation. That's why these demons were referencing a certain time in verse 29. Is it, have you come to terrorize us before the time? Don't we still have some time on earth to terrorize people? Are you turning the tables too soon? They were under certain judgment. But let's be fair that before we came to Christ by the grace of Christ, guess what? You and I were under certain judgment. The difference is we are given the grace of the gospel and we can be saved from certain judgment whereas these demons are under certain judgment. This text begs some questions that I want to raise. If you didn't raise them already in your own mind, why do these demons want to stay in this area? Mark's account says that the demons are saying, can we just stay here? Secondly, why do they beg to go into pigs? What's that all about? Why do they want to go into pigs? You should be asking that question, I guess. I asked it, I don't know. Why does Jesus grant their request? Maybe that's the most important question. What's Jesus doing here with this? He didn't hurl demons into other animals in other accounts that I know of. It's just he exercised them. Why does he send them into pigs? Well, the demons and the, the demoniacs, those who were possessed by the demons, saw the pigs. It says in verse um, Thirty that they were at some distance from them. A mile away were two thousand pigs. That's Mark's account. Two thousand pigs. I think it's Mark five thirteen, and they're probably about a mile away because they were in view. And the demons they they want to convince Jesus of something that they think Jesus hasn't thought of. Hey, I I know you might be here to terrorize us or or judge us or send us away into you know hell right now but can you just leave us in the area and put us over there in the pigs we'll be harmless we won't do any harm over there send us to those animals it's a better option i mean satan himself had inhabited a serpent so why can't we inhabit some pigs and perhaps you know some people say they wanted to offend the jews and because pigs are ceremonially unclean Um, but this is a gentile region so that's probably not in effect at all a massive herd of of pigs a physical display of a mass of demons i really think that's the point Uh, jesus sees and he's identifying that there are thousands of demons in these two men there's a legion of demons here and there's thousands of pigs over there so he he wants to display the massive scope and scale of demons right here And I think this is a big wake-up call. This could be the point of the message for you. Demons are real, they're powerful, and they're everywhere. And we have to do something about it. Not to save ourselves. Once we're saved, we're saved. But we have to recognize that there is real warfare that is going on. Uh, Commentators and, you know, the church will just kind of ignore demons altogether one uh, scholar took at least a page and a half, two pages, it was just funny to me, um, to defend Jesus for putting demons into pigs, those poor pigs. It was, like, it was like theological pedo was going on for like a page and a half. Oh, those pigs, we feel so sorry for them. And how could Jesus do that? He didn't mean it. It's cruelty to animals. At least my wife's laughing over this. That's funny. <laughs> if I get that, you know, it's a win. Um, But the pigs, they're just simply illustrations. They're just illustrations. They're just a picture of this. Um, It's a picture that something extraordinary was happening. And the demons were excised. They were taken out of two individuals and they were put somewhere else. Thousands of them were taken out of one man or two men and put into 2,000 pigs over here. When you were saved... You are under Satan's curse. Listen, you just have to own this. We, we are under the prince of the power of the air. Uh, he is the one who is the God of this age. He is, he is ruling the minds of unbelievers. He's blinding us. And, and we're under that control. And, and so Jesus is making a massive display of what it looks like for him to take two men out from under the control of Satan... And give them the mind of Christ, put them at peace with God, and to put these demons somewhere else. You're not almost saved, or three quarters saved, or 99% saved from Satan. You are saved from Satan. You stand in grace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I'll never forget when... I mean, this is just throwing back to 20 years ago with 9-11. Do you remember what George W. Bush read... Um, from his platform, I don't know if he was standing in front of the White House or where he was, but he read Romans 8. And he read the verse, nothing can separate us, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That was the secure verse. That was the blanket of security that he was putting on our nation in that moment. Well, you can say that, and I appreciated that he said that. But for Christians, it's actually true. You're secure. The demons have gone. They've left. They're gone from inhabiting you, inhabiting um, leadership in your life. We were prior to Christ. We are under the lordship of Satan. And then we are delivered. So I surmise that this is the point, a physical display of deliverance. Demons believe they could get away from judgment, but Jesus is showing that they are um, in jeopardy of immediate judgment. Immediate judgment. They're saying, don't kill us. We won't harm anyone at all. Mark 5.10, and he begged. This is the demoniac under the influence of the demons. He's begging on behalf of the demons. Please do not send me out of the country. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country, Mark 5.10. The demonized man was compromised. He was speaking for them. He was negotiating on behalf of them. A man who is sinning is really negotiating with Satan. He's allowing Satan to negotiate with him. It's a battle of the wills. When we fight our flesh, we're also, we're also being flanked on the side by arrows and, and wrong thoughts that are trying to invade our thinking, um, speculations to doubt. Jesus, to doubt the Bible, to doubt eternity, to doubt heaven, to doubt hell, to doubt the gospel. And this has to be made right by the truth. James 1, 14 says that we battle against our own flesh, right? That comes up and tempts us to sin. It lures us like a fishing lure in our heart to grab onto. And then James 4 bookends that with the fact that it says resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 1, James 4, we're supposed to fight our flesh and resist the devil. James 4, if you read the context, why do you have quarrels and divisions within the church? That's a moral dynamic in the church that has to be repented of and solved. And while you're solving that in the Christian life, solving for unity, solving for peace in the household of God, guess what that's doing? That's resisting the devil. That's sending him away. That's how warfare works. We stand in grace. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And at the same time, we're fighting for truth. And we're standing for truth. We're repenting of sin. We're walking in the Holy Spirit. We're being church together. That's resisting the devil. That's keeping things unified and strong. Jesus cast the demons into the swine. Not as a grace. Not as a way to say, okay, I'll concede. I'll give you what you want this once. No, it's to send them to judgment. It actually pictures judgment. Look at verse 32. And he said to them, go. Now, in a, a pre, you know, other parallel passages, Mark, Mark 5 and Luke's account, it says that Jesus was trying to cast the demons out over and over again. And he wasn't failing in that moment. There was no power contest and power struggle between Jesus and the demons. At that point, he was provoking the demoniac and and the demons to expose themselves as legion. And he wanted to show the scope and scale and the magnitude of what was going on. But at this point, Jesus says, go. And guess what? They went. And it's very a matter of fact in the way Matthew uh, portrays it. Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over the storm. He's Lord over sickness. He's Lord over death. And He's Lord over the demons. Says to the storm, Peace, be still. It stops. Demons go. They go. This is the Lord's will over everything. In the end, Satan's going to be loosed in a dramatic way at the end of the millennial kingdom. And And he will create an insurrection with uh, children who've been raised in the millennial kingdom who do not believe. And they will ultimately all be consumed with fire and vanquished into hell, cast into the lake of fire forever. God is the God of all of these things. And Jesus is Lord over all of these things as God, very God. You remember the scene from Job 1. Where even Satan himself with all of his demons had an audience with the Lord and the Lord gave him permission to do whatever he was going to do. But that's all under the sovereignty of God. There's an immediate sense and a ultimate sense, a two dynamic sense with Satan and demons The immediate sense is we fight the good fight of faith. The ultimate sense is nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You just have to know those two dynamics are happening all the time. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is Jesus inside than everything that's going on in the world. I stand in grace, and yet at the same time, we're in a wrestling match. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but angels, principalities. We take up the shield of faith. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What do we do in the immediate? We pray. We seek God's word. I was talking to somebody on the way in from last week's message responding to this week. Um, He was saying uh, something that he had heard where he said for every um, one look to our flesh, we need to have 10 looks to Jesus. I mean, we, we we need to be driven to the Bible and we need to counteract satanic temptations to err in our thinking or stray in our thinking with the confidence of truth. We, we take everything, every thought captive to Jesus, to the truth. Jesus, uh, the Satan cannot give us, a, he cannot serve us with a mortal blow. He's not going to kill you and send you to hell. Um, but you can fall into discouragement. You can splutter. You can doubt in the faith. And we need to be strong. For other people's sake, so that we can have a clear conscience and we can, we can give the gospel. You know, one encouraging fact. This will sound really weird, but one encouraging fact about believing that there's a real devil and real Satan and real demons is that we're not crazy. Things really do ramp up. Things really do get dire sometimes. There are real poisonous darts out there. There are real arrows. There are real threats in our homes. And threats to our families as we, as we hear things and watch people begin to stray and think strange things. All of that is real. How do we counterattack Satan? Well, if you just look at the general ebb and flow of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. I'm sure you could do this all through all 66 books of the Bible. But for many of the New Testament books of the Bible, what you see is this command. Live the normal Christian life. Um, trust the truth embrace the promises, believe the gospel, you're saved by grace alone. Walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Do the one another's. Serve one another. Build other, others up in the body of Christ, right? These are the themes of the New Testament. Exalt Christ. He's the only way to heaven. And, and go to church. And, and stop not going to church. Come. Be a part of each other. Find your spiritual gift. All of those things are just classic Christianity 101 as you read the New Testament. And then at the end of most of those books of the Bible, there's a little peel back of the curtain, like this black curtain. You just peel back and guess what? Satan's real. He's alive. There are demons out there trying to take you off point with just living the normal Christian life. If you live the normal Christian life under the Lordship of Christ, you are fighting against Satan. What do I mean by that? Well, the Gospels. Jesus says, obey me, follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And guess what? There's real demons that get exercised, right? Fight for truth. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't follow the Pharisees. Um, They say that Jesus is doing things by Satan's power. He says, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. There are little curtain pullback moments to say there is a real dark realm out there. Adam, Let's go back to Genesis um, 3. You know, Adam, Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit. They are immoral in that moment. But guess what? There is a curtain pullback early. Genesis 3.15, there's going to be a moment where the serpent's head is crushed. That's spiritual warfare. Now I'll trace that forward in the New Testament. The book of Acts, you have the church. It's built. There's a missionary movement. And guess what? There are there are the sons of Sceva. And oh man, there's demons out there and things that are going on. Romans. You have justification by grace through faith alone. And this is what it looks like to grow in the Christian life. And then you have angels and principalities. You have 1 Corinthians 5, following church discipline, confronting people in the church, normal Christian things in the church, confrontation, restoration. And 1 Corinthians 5, someone's caught in immorality that's incestuous and and he's rebelling. So he needs to be delivered outside of the church um, into the realm of Satan. Deliver such a one over to Satan. That's a curtain pullback. That's, that's what's going on when someone is removed from the fellowship in the church. They're removed so that they will come to the end of themselves and come back and believe Christ. 2 Corinthians 11. Um, Satan is an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 12. There is the messenger of Satan, which is the thorn in the flesh. The angel of Satan. The angel of Satan was attacking Paul. Galatians, there's another gospel. Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. First Timothy, there are doctrines of demons. James, resist the devil. First Peter, Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We read that as elders this morning. It's in the context of eldership, submitting to elders, um, young people, young men in the church being humble, clothe yourselves in humility. Hey, if you're anxious, cast all your cares upon him. And guess what? By the way, Satan's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like live the Christian life. Obey leaders, be humble, um, deal with your anxiety. By the way, after that, it says, suffer well. And, and behind the scenes, Satan's a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First um, Peter, second Peter, there's false teachers. First John, you've overcome the evil one, Jude. And, and the archangel Michael was contending with the devil. Revelation, the beast and the antichrist will be cast in the lake of fire. There's a lot of... Moments that we see where the realm is real. But how do you deal with this realm? You live the normal Christian life. You obey truth. You put on the armor of God, truth, righteousness, faith, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, helmet of salvation. That's going into battle, dealing with we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Um, I read this theology, this teaching in a book that I would recommend to you if you want to go find it. It's called Power Encounters by David Powellson. It's one of my top five books I've ever read. That's where all this material is coming from. Um, deeply impactful for understanding warfare and just living the normal Christian life and how it all harmonizes. Instead of making warfare dynamics mystical, it's moral. Instead of it making, uh, going after demons like in some sort of strange mystical way where you're talking to them or trying to deal with them just live the christian life and understand that the battle is raging and as you live and as you serve and as you you know husbands as you listen to your wife in understanding way your prayers aren't hindered as wives as you submit under your husband when you don't want to god is glorified the devil is resisted in those moments prayers are happening things are happening that's the household of faith. I probably said too much about all this stuff. The greatest, uh, the greatest moment of spiritual warfare in the Bible was at the cross. I believe that. Remember, Satan fell like lightning. His judgment was sure. Genesis chapter 3.15. Um, you're going to bite the heel, but your head as the serpent is going to be crushed. When did that happen? At the cross. Uh, what was Jesus doing at the cross? Um, Well, right before Garden of Gethsemane, I don't want to drink the cup of wrath. Lord, can uh, this cup pass from me? Uh, No, okay. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I will obey you. Hebrews chapter 12, with joy going to the cross. He went to the cross. He died and suffered. And by suffering and obeying to suffer and absorbing your sin on the cross, Satan's head was crushed. His defeat was sure. It's the greatest act of spiritual warfare was through Jesus' obedience by going to the cross. Think about that. That's the Christian life. That's how it works. Well, the pigs here, let's get them over the cliff. Verse 32, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Water in um, ancient folklore was what killed demons. There's nothing really true about that i think more importantly we should ask ourselves the question where did the demons go in luke eight thirty one, they begged him not to command them to depart into the the abyss where's the abyss what well, could be the second peter 2 4 and jude 1 6 where demons are cast into hell they're they're committed to chains of gloomy darkness eternal change under chains under gloomy darkness those Maybe a reference to those condemned in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim and all of that. But could be where they were sent to. I like how Warren Wiersbe applies this, though, and says, Hey, don't be like the pigs. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't be the pigs. Don't be the ones for whom the demons are cast into. Warren Wiersbe said, "Um, A pig is as good as a man. In fact, Satan will make a man into a pig. Don't be that. Pigs rush um, over the cliff, into the water, and Mark 513, literally the language says they were choked in the sea. They were choked, they were drowned, they were out of commission. It was the picture of hell. It was a picture of where demons are committed to. There's no grace. There's no second chance for a demon. It was a dramatic way to show the seriousness and uniqueness of what was happening. It's also the dramatic way of showing deliverance. I already already pointed this out, but Jesus came from a crowded demon deliverance evening to uh, a day later on the other side of the sea to deliver two who were under demonic control. Two under devastating circumstances. Two terrorist Jesus saved. The shepherd goes and leaves the flock of the 99 to go after the one. In this case, Jesus went for two. It's awesome. Don't underestimate your mission field to two people or one person. And don't underestimate the power of the gospel to save anybody. If these people can be saved, anybody can be saved. Nobody's worse than these people. Nobody. Nobody's better off than these people were better. Better off, nobody. They were put beyond guilt and confusion, and their fears were completely quieted. Well, let me go through the points again. I think I've gone off ship with, um, gone off track with my outline. But you know, first you're saved from a satanic realm. Secondly, you're saved from enslavement. Um, you know, thirdly, you're slave. You're you're saved from certain judgment. You're saved from the certain judgment. And then fourthly here in verses 33 and 34, you're saved from personal dread. Look at this, verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. These were not herdsmen that were thinking they were giving good news. (laughs) They were giving bad news from their perspective. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Everybody came out to see what had happened. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Primarily, they weren't. the people were not concerned about the produce and the fact that the pigs were gone, though that was a serious hit to their financial situation. But in terms of food and, and um, their ability to buy and sell and trade, all that was ruined in an instant. But really, they were more struck by the condition of the demon-possessed man. All that they would have had for their understanding of what happened, they didn't see the miracle happen, is the before, their terrorist, and then the after. He's sitting there clothed in his right mind, as Mark's account attests. There was a noticeable difference. When you're saved, there is a before and an after. There is a pre-Christ, and then there is a miracle event, that's salvation, and then there is a post, now you know Christ, you. There's a pre-Christ you and a post-Christ you. And it should be noticeably different. And guess what? It's going to draw some people and basically disgust most people people don't like a jesus who can do something like that. And I'll just skip ahead again. People liked it the way they lived. They liked their pigs, they liked their demons, they liked the terrorism. I mean, I'm not saying it was all fun and bells and and they loved it and whistles and it's great and but they were used to it. It's like how people just tuck in with the world and they go, "Yeah, this is how it is." I don't like it. You know, I'd love to be able to go to that part of town, but those two giant demon things will go eat me alive or kill my children, so I guess i got to go this way. I can't go that way. I'll go this way. This is a better life for me. I've got my pigs, so we're good. Jesus, you just messed all that up. You just messed all that up. What were you thinking? Why'd you do that? It was kind of my experience when I became a Christian. I still remember... I was studying. I was thinking, should I give my testimony? I just remember I was, I was Jeff Crotz like this without Jesus. That's who I was in the youth group. And so I was demonstrably known as a bad guy and a guy who, you know, could smile big and, and talk a good game but was hypocritical. And, you know, the youth pastor and all the youth workers knew that and kids knew that. So when I became a Christian, I was demonstrably different it's so different that the pastor of the church told the youth pastor tell jeff we've got him scheduled to give his testimony publicly in front of the whole church both services because i just want him to do that and so i got up and gave my testimony i remember the pastor like give me a little nudge like get up there boy go to the microphone and do your thing and as i was speaking about my conversion i made eye contact with people that i had grown up with in public school in different arenas where um They were sinners and they weren't saved. And they saw that I was making a real break and a real commitment, um, breaking from them and showing that I was following Christ, just like these two women will share in a few hours from the waters of baptism. It's just, you're new, you're different. And I walked out into the parking lot and this guy I'd grown up with first through seventh grade, best friends, and then he had relocated to a school and come to our youth group. So we had become friends again. And he said, Man, you just made an incredible public commitment to Christ. That was a big time commitment. And he wasn't saying, I am committing myself to Christ. He would be like the townsman who marveled at Jesus. It's not like a real saving faith moment, it's just that was a powerful moment. That's what he was doing. You're demonstrably different when you're in Christ. And that's what these demoniacs were. It was frightening. And what was frightening was not the demon-possessed men, though that was amazing to people. It was that Jesus' power had done something to them, and they didn't know what to do with it. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Jesus is at the forefront of this discussion. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. How weird. How weird. You have two men, Mark and Luke, talk about the one man. He's clothed in his right mind. He's at peace with God. Jesus, what'd you do to that person? Get out of here. Get out of here. You know, the worst thing you can possibly do is tell Jesus to leave. And the worst possible thing that can happen to you is have Jesus leave. Have him leave you. You ask him to leave. He says, okay, I'll leave. That's a judgment. That's, that's damnable that's coming under reprobation. It's frightening to beg Jesus to leave. And it's more frightening for Jesus to answer by leaving. People do bizarre things when they encounter Christ. The demons were gone. The herdsmen fled. Verse 33. They ran frightened. They whooped up the crowd. The terrorists had been dealt with. And the crowds are saying we want it to go exactly back to the way it was before. Before. We want our crop back. We want our pigs back. We don't see who Jesus really is. Um, their deepest need was not pigs and their source to source of revenue. Their de- deepest needs was, was Jesus and having their sins forgiven. Um, Satan, when he's controlling and blinding people, they don't see that. They don't understand that. Jesus is always attractive and repulsive to people at the same time okay well let 's change the channels and fin- change the channel and finish up a v- really long sermon real quick. Mark chapter five I finished it in first hour, so we 're bound to do it second hour. This is point five we 're saved to win those closest to you. Turn um, over to Mark chapter five. This is where the story picks up in verse eighteen Mark five verse eighteen. listen and he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. Uh, He begged. There's a lot of begging going on. Demons are begging to be put in pigs, um, and the townsmen are begging Jesus to leave, and now the the saved demoniac, the person who was demon-possessed, is begging to get into the boat with Jesus. Can I just be your mentee? Can I follow you? And what does Jesus say? Look, Here at verse 19, he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I don't want you to miss this. The herdsmen and the townsmen, they're saying, get out of here. And the demons are condemned and they don't have a second chance. Jesus is saying, listen, I know you want to come be with me but that's not my plan for you. My plan is for you to go back to those people and to the other cities of Decapolis, the other 10 cities around, and I'm gonna send you back there to be my missionary. I know you wanna be with me, but you've had a dramatic transformation. Go back and win people. That's a second chance. The demons don't get that chance. Everyone else does. This is grace. This is the story of grace. This is the gospel for Jesus to send the demoniacs that are saved now, saved from Satan, to win those who are closest to them. Win your family and friends. What's the worst possible mission field you could be sent to? Your family. (laughs) It's the scariest one, right? They know all your weaknesses. They know everything you say and do behind closed doors. They know the highs and lows. But when you're sincere and you truly love Jesus and you're in that context, even if you're not perfect, your gospel matters to them. And they'll listen. And it's powerful. It's powerful the they the demoniacs were first under demon influence and then this demoniac was sent away from jesus and then he's spiritually signed sealed and delivered he's set by jesus by the holy spirit it's a tough mission field but this mission field is what qualifies us for leadership as we go into it how do you reach them simply this you remember one simple truth You were saved from Satan. That's how dramatic your salvation is. You were the demoniac. You were alone. You were separate. You were sinful. You were perverse. You were isolated. You were naked. You were self-destructive. You were demonized. And Jesus took your place. Became your became sin was stripped naked, was isolated, and put on a cross for you. He became your substitute. In Jesus' darkest moment, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was put into a tomb. Satan thought that he had won. Darkness was over the earth. And then Jesus, on the third day, did what? Rose again, proved that he was victorious, and he won. He delivered you from the transforming. um, He transformed you from sinner to saint. He delivered you by his power. He clothed you with his righteousness. He gave you peace with God. He gave you the mind of Christ You're freed to follow Christ, to obey his will. You're freed to reach the most intimate relationships on earth to you with that saving gospel.